0: Welcome back, Breakaway Wealth. I'm your host, Jim Oliver, and with me today is Kelly Halverson. Kelly, welcome.
1: Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. Uh, Kelly is the, gosh, he told me his title the head actuary, exec, he's not executive vice president. Tell he's, me your title one more time. Kelly. Uh, vice
1: president and actuary, individual
0: product development. Okay, which means he's very high up. There's, a, there's an old... Um, kind of when I've, I've been in the business for a long time Kelly as you know and uh, there was uh, in these small towns in Iowa there was a uh, what they would say is that when you came into the town you would see the pre- you know presidents of the company's big house on the on the right and right next to it was the head actuaries same size house because <laughs> um, if your kids are uh, numbers driven actuaries are one of the highest paid uh, and uh, uh, employees at the company and they really run the numbers to make sure the company's profitable and everything so most of them do not have as great a personality as kelly does i would tell you i've met a lot of them and kelly is by far and away got the 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 best personality
1: i appreciate hearing that thanks jim (laughs) you're welcome
0: all right so For, you know, here's my layman's example or or, uh, description of an actuary is an actuary is like the insurance company's engineers. They're designing the product. They're designing to make sure the product's not going to fail. That's, you know, that it's going to, it's going to work out. So today we've got a lot of This is going to be one if you have insurance policies or you're thinking about buying insurance policies and you're going to do infinite banking or you're just protecting your family or you've heard this or you've heard that. This is the guy that you want to talk to to kind of straighten out all of the you know what's real and what's not. So um, Kelly first of all let's just talk about what does an actuary do and how did you first of all how did you get interested in being an actuary and you know growing up are you you're from nebraska
1: uh no originally from south dakota but uh the, right. you already you already started the intro with with a good tie into my my career path so when i w- when i was in high school i was i was dead set i was going to go to either university of iowa or iowa state and be an engineer and my my uh spring of my senior year my older brother had told me about actuarial science and he said uh yeah if you're, if you're good at math you like accounting yeah, this would be great, great fit for you. And like I said, well, are you, are you doing that? And he was a math major at the time in college. And it's like, oh, I, I tried that at first exam a couple of times. I couldn't pass it. And that was, that was what sold me. It's like, oh, I've got to be able to beat my brother at this. So, nice. uh, so I, I started out as a double major accounting and actuarial science at the University of Nebraska. And within a couple of years dropped the accounting major and, and focused on the actuarial side of things and never looked back. So, um, Yeah, it's uh, going on 20 years now um, since uh, graduating college, nearly so. Remind me where you grew up
0: in South Dakota. I can't believe I forgot that because I knew that.
1: Yeah, yeah, in uh, Milbank. Milbank, Milbank. South Dakota is where I, home of the Bulldogs. I've been Um, to
0: Milbank. Um, uh, You know, I mean, I've been through Milbank. It's not, it's not big, right? So, uh, but, um, you know, I always say, I, I mean, I love South Dakota, by the way. I love the state. I love what Christy Noem's doing. We don't get political on this show, but, but, uh, but I do love what she's doing and I love the way she's running the, the state and uh, not shutting things down. But um, um, I'll tell you what, South Dakota is, that's how you run a state and that's how you bring business to the state and everything else. And there's always a toughness to people that are from South Dakota, Kelly, because if you can make it through the winter up there now, I'm, I'm just telling you, I'm in Florida, I I still own my house in South Dakota, but I'm in Florida most of the time. And uh, um, but the winters up there, they will, you know, adversity introduces the man to himself and the winters up there are definitely adverse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was, that's the best part about moving south in, uh, in quotations, coming to Lincoln, Nebraska, about six hours south of uh, Milbank. Yeah. I couldn't believe how much warmer the winter was even this far. Yeah, uh, yeah, so the yeah, winners down there
0: aren't, aren't that bad, right? Yeah,
1: yep, exactly. kind of more like
0: Kansas City than uh, than South Dakota. But yep. um, all right, so what does an actuary
1: do? Yeah, so um, it kind of it depends on what uh, what part of the industry you end up choosing. For me, working in life and annuity products, um, for it's a lot of uh, we do a lot of benchmarking, look at a lot of our competitor products, and uh, really go through go through the detailed product filings um, to, to better understand our competitor products, understand what our options are in, in terms of design. So, um, you know, we, we do end up using a lot of the, the theoretical stuff we learned in, in college and don't, we don't necessarily apply the, take, take the theory and use that really in a in a raw sense. It's applying that to, to spreadsheets or um, different pricing software, that, that kind of thing where you take those learnings and, and you make it more of an applied basis. So um, yeah, we're, we're doing experience studies, look at the lapse behavior of our existing business, You know how how have policies performed over the last 10 or 20 years, um, look back at when we started doing fluid-based underwriting, we took some guesses as to what mortality is gonna look like um, as time progresses 10, 20 years on, we get to understand and review that experience and, and better know, is it, um, are, are we, are we getting preferred plus like mortality into our preferred plus book? Um, so we, we do a lot of the actual to expected analysis on lapses, expenses, mortality. Um, and then that all flows in through, uh, through the dividend declarations as well. So, um, so a lot of it is looking in the, in the rearview mirror to try to decide where we're going to go next.
0: That's, that's awesome. And you know, one of the things that, um, I always say, like, when I'm explaining insurance to somebody, I always talk about term insurance, right? And I say, you know, Kelly, if you and I were going to start an insurance company, we just sell term insurance, because, you know, there, there's not a lot of term policies that pay a death benefit. And that's the only benefit is the death benefit, right? And that the the company doesn't think you're going to die. Like if you buy a policy at 35 years old or something, the company has actuarial data that says the chances are really low that you're going to die, but you got to protect your family. So you buy it. Right. And then when you're 65, if you wanted to buy a 30 year term policy, the insurance company would laugh at you because they know within that 30 years, your chances of dying are closer to hundred percent than, than, than the 1% or less. So know what i always say is is when you buy a term policy you're betting against the insurance company and they have actuarial data on their side and 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 i've heard that you know if i told you okay i'm 55 years old i grew up at and this is where i grew up there there was a thousand kids in my high school you could tell me how many of them are dead by now right and 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 you know with some other data you could get really close to telling me how many of those people are dead, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, you have a, have a pretty good guess. Um, if you've got a big enough number, that's, that's the key thing you threw out there, the 1,000 lives. So law of large numbers, um, when, once you start getting a big enough population and you, you understand um, what part of the world they're from, you understand the mortality of that overall group of, of individuals, you can get a pretty good handle on that for sure.
0: All right. I think by the time we get this done, Kelly, we're going to take this recording over to underwriting. You're going to upgrade me from select to preferred plus. They say I'm a little bit short for my weight, but I'm, I'm just telling you, I, 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 you know, if I could just get six, three, six, four on that application, I might still be, I might sneak in just right under the number for, uh, uh, for preferred plus, but (laughs) all right. So let's talk about, um, you know, one of the questions I get a lot. When we look at like a whole life policy, we deal mostly with whole life policies, and we, we I want to touch on kind of how the you know the how a whole life policy is kind of manufactured. But um, people will say to me, "Well, how does the insurance company guarantee four percent gross?" Because um, you know they're they're not getting four percent on their por- portfolio now, and you know how do they do that? Can you just touch on that for a minute?
1: Yeah, yeah. And this this is um, this is a really timely question too, because it, it fits in really, really well with the, the regulation change that um, we at Emeritus and, and the entire life insurance industry is dealing with as um, end of last year, the, the 7702 changes just got passed. So um, there'll be a tie in there as, as we move into that part of the discussion. But um, the, the 4% uh, guaranteed rate which is it's commonly called that when you look at our whole life policies. Um, if you look at a specimen contract from Emeritus, it's gonna say contract rate 4%. And what that, that means, it's, it's not going to say you look at your guaranteed cash value at year 10 and it's $10,000 and you look at your guaranteed cash value at year 11, it's not automatically going to be 4% higher. Um, that 4% is used in the guaranteed cash value determination um, but it's it's really more of a reserve calculation. So to your point, the, the gross mortality and the gross interest rate used in determining guaranteed cash values is 4%. So it basically says, when you look at the, the maximum age, let's say age 121 on a $1 million dollar policy on a whole life contract, doesn't matter which company you're looking at, they're all going to have the exact same guaranteed cash value at age 121 it's gonna be exactly the same as the death benefit. And that's, that's the way those guaranteed cash value calculations work is from the time you issue that policy to the time they hit age 121 guaranteed cash value is growing and increasing each and every year. Um, but the, the 4% isn't a true guaranteed internal rate of return. Um, it, it is gonna vary quite a bit year by year. Um, for most contracts, it probably peaks at about two, two and a half percent. If you're looking at a guaranteed actual rate of return. Because uh, that is going to be net of the um, the death benefit or net, net of the mortality costs, um, and that all, also doesn't bring into consideration the guaranteed premiums, because um, you could have the exact same guaranteed cash value on two different contracts, um, but one of them might have a premium that's 20 or 30 percent less. So obviously, that one's going to have a stronger internal rate of return on the guaranteed cash values because you're paying a lot less premium to buy the exact same guaranteed performance. So, right. so yeah, there's a lot of lot of different moving pieces there.
0: Yeah. And that's where I think sometimes, you know, when, um, and at create tail, when we show people a lot infinite banking and there's a lot of people that are out there creating YouTube videos and everything else, and they focus so much on the policy and they focus on the ratings of the policy. And I always use Kelly, the example of AIG in 2008 or nine, where 30 days before they were basically insolvent, um, they had all the top ratings, right. And their derivatives division, in uh, London, England, almost brought that company down, like 20 people in one division, because as you know, derivatives are super uh, risky. And if it goes the wrong way, you're, you're, you're in trouble. So, you know, what I really like about Emeritus, and I've been using Emeritus since I think 2004, is um, one, they don't overstate dividends, right? They don't over project, which I think some companies out there are using their reserves or using their BD, their broker dealer, I'm sorry, uh, to, you know, kind of jack up those, those dividends, but what are they doing to the company or what are they doing? Because we've just had one insurance company get in trouble because of their reserving on the annuity side. And they're actually demutualizing. We might talk touch on that, but, but, you know, talk about, um, Talk about that reserving and really what's important to look at an insurance company from a strength standpoint. Because so I think this is where Emeritus really shines, but you have to look a little bit under the surface to see it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm glad you brought that up, Jim, because that is, that is an area we really focus on within our business, uh, within our balance sheet. Um, you'll hear our, our CEO talk a lot about our fortress-like balance sheet and the, the strength of, uh, of what we bring to the table. The the easiest metric for us to look at is capital and surplus to assets. Everybody publishes that. That's in blue books, um, and we haven't haven't seen the the year end numbers, but we did just recently update our our benchmarking, and it showed um, our capital and surplus to assets ratio at eleven point four percent. Industry average is just above nine percent, um, and there there's companies that um, you know at the opposite extreme from from our approach. I'd say is Athene where they they really Try to grow assets as quickly as possible and keep as as little capital behind that as possible, just to be as efficient as possible. Their ratio is less than two percent. So, um, so there's a big disparity across the industry as to how people are capitalizing their insurance operations. Um, we have a, we have, like I said, of the companies we benchmark, the highest uh, capital and surplus to assets ratio. So we feel like we're in a good position to weather um, some un- unpleasant times. You know, over the last year, it, we've seen that play out in the industry. Um, where where a lot of coronavirus deaths have, have led to higher expected higher than expected mortalities across the industry. You know, when we looked at year end numbers, it was more than 20% above for the entire life insurance industry in terms of paid death benefits. Um, for us, that that isn't really even a blip on our radar screen when you when you look at the capital position of emeritus.
0: Yeah, so that's that's another great question. I'm glad you brought that up, Kelly. Too is. We had people originally, they were saying, hey, are the insurance companies in trouble because we're going to have all these additional deaths. Now, it's kind of debatable whether, you know, did, did, were there 20% more people that actually died in the U.S.? Or was it just the mortality experience that we saw? 20%, like you said, is a blip. It's not going to affect the financial performance of the company or the strength of the company or that or the the capital ratio uh, reserve ratio i mean talk about that a little bit
1: yeah yeah so when we um we do a lot of mortality sensitivities as we price our products and, and try to understand what earnings emergence could look like what if we're wrong what if underwriters get a little too aggressive in underwriting risks like jim oliver yeah, um, and don't, don't tell, uh, that no. Stuff, they so.
0: cannot be too aggressive with our <laughs> firm. They can just let them write what approve everything. <laughs>
1: there you go. Um, but usually we, we'll look at we'll look at a pandemic where it'd be a one-time shock and mortality. Um, those those scenarios we, we can we can withstand a pretty severe one-time shock and mortality. You know, ten times the the magnitude we just saw over the past year. So in, in those terms, the company's well capitalized. The the scenario of if if we are off and mortality is 20% higher, not just this year, but every year into the future, those those are more more catastrophic scenarios for for emeritus or for the industry. Um, And that's also one of the advantages of our approach where we we are a multi-line company and we have diversified earning sources. So um, we don't put all of our eggs solely in the the basket of mortality risk. We've got asset risk, we've got retirement plans business, group dental business. So um, that, that helps us in those scenarios as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't think people realize what an and I don't think the ratings companies give enough credit to that dental business because that's a that's only helping support the strength of your life insurance contract and your life insurance operations. I mean, that's that's huge. A lot of companies they have riskier things in place of that of that dental, like AIG had a derivatives division.
1: Right. Yeah, and, and we've been we've been successful in that dental business for a long time now. We've grown that really quickly over the last 20, 30 years, um, done some acquisitions within that space too. So it's it is a meaningful part of our, our overall enterprise, um, our revenue, our earnings. Um, so like I said, it's it is a, a big help for us to have those diversified earnings bases.
0: Yeah, so um, okay, so Kelly, when we look at what is the industry doing? Um we talk about low interest rate environment. I mean, we've been in a low interest rate environment now. I mean, this is as long as I can remember in my 55 years on, on, on earth being in this kind of low rate environment. um, What do we, what does the insurance company look at and and what are they doing for a low interest rate environment? And then, and how does that affect the insurance contracts? And then if it turns around and it went the other direction and we have back like the eighties, where we had high interest rates and Nelson Nash does a great job talking about him getting kind of caught in a high interest rate environment, but his life insurance contracts bailed him out of that. And so talk about those two extremes or, or kind of what's happening right now.
1: Yeah. Um, so in the the low interest rate environment, um, I agree. It's It's been unprecedented. We thought we were in a low interest rate environment and then 2020 happened and um, whole, whole new level. So not, it's not really fun to set those kind of records with the ten-year Treasury, um, but things things have really improved here in the last few months. So that's that's been a nice help. Um, but when when you look at the investment-grade assets that um, that our asset team is is looking to back to buy to back our portfolios, um, there there is a gap between new money rates, the assets we can buy today, versus where portfolio yields are at, um, and. Uh, our, our products as well as what we think is everybody else out there in terms of the way they manage their whole life books of business, they look at a portfolio rate approach. Um, so what that means is as long as new money rates continue to be below where portfolio yields are, there's going to be a, a slow bleed, you know, a slow trickle of um, dividend declines. And, and you've seen that over the last few years, you know, 10 basis points here, 25 basis points there, um, dividend interest rates migrating downwards. So um, we, we were probably in 2018, we were really close to seeing, um, new money rates cross over and be stronger than portfolio yields. So there's a lot of excitement, um, both within Emeritus and across the industry that, yeah, we might be out of this low interest rate cycle, but, uh, things, things really shifted the other direction too. So, you know, I, I think if, um, if we stay in this environment, they will will continue to be dividend rate declines. And, um, it, it's, it's just a, it's a challenging part of the economic cycle to be in one we've never been in. Um, where we've seen this low of, of treasury environment. Um, but in, in spite of that, we've, we've been able to maintain pretty competitive dividend interest rate and, and um, we've put more value into our guaranteed cash values, um, strengthened our paid up riders. So those, those are some of the ways we've, we've looked to maintain competitiveness and, and help to, to keep a really strong product out there, um, even though the, the yield hasn't been there to, to make it quite as exciting as it was 10, 15 years ago.
0: Yeah, you know what's really interesting about the emeritus product, and as, as as you know, we look at a lot of different insurance companies, and the the guarantees inside the emeritus contract are just such a an attractive part of it, just as a customer buying life insurance and expanding my um, infinite banking portfolio. But when I look at like a 10-year um, projection, right? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, I don't, I don't know. I haven't run one, um, I'm insurance age 56 now, but um, I guess I could backdate it. But um, if I'm 45 years old, I know that even as a male select, I, I'm i gonna have more money on the guaranteed side than I put in. So in 10 years, I'm gonna have guaranteed to have more money than what I put in there. Now think about that. What other thing could you put in money for 10 years, and guarantee guaranteed worst case scenario, you have more than you put in. And it's got tax advantages. Now, to me, this is where it's so cool. With that lower dividend rate, you know, infinite banking still works And the insurance company is charging me interest, and I'm using their money. And I'm going out and buying cash flow assets. That's what I do. And, um, and it's a win-win because the insurance company is getting a nice return on their money, but I'm using their money to go make more money, which is what a bank does. That's why it's called infinite banking. Right. And, or it's one of the reasons it's called infinite banking. And so, but, but I have access to that money. Um, it's, it's a, it's a win for the insurance company. I have priority to get that loan over all other investment opportunities for the insurance company. And, and, and after 10 years, again, if I'm 45 or 50, about more than 95% of the, per, the, the current market conditions, which is what we're showing on the right side of the ledger with a whole life, right? It's not a projection like a universal life policy. It's not, maybe this will happen. We hope that it would return this. This is what it's doing right now in the lowest interest rate environment we've ever seen. So it's 95% guaranteed. That to me, that's the story that, you know, the, the, that's the story. That's the thing we should be celebrating in the insurance side because nobody else can
1: say that. Right. Yeah. You, you have that, that floor, that, that peace of mind on if, if things really go South across the, the economy, across the industry, um, what is that worst case scenario in, in our guaranteed side of the ledger? It looks, it looks pretty compelling. Um, and you know, as, as I was just saying, the hope is we're going to see interest rates start to, to rebound, we'll see the economy start to open back up, um, GDP start moving in the right direction. So a lot of things that could be trending in the right direction, we see some increases in interest rates, and hopefully get out of this lengthy cycle of low interest rates. And in that scenario, um, what's going to happen? Portfolio yields go up, interest rates go up, dividend interest rates go up. So you're, you're then going to see um, if that scenario does play out, you're going to see performance better than what was originally illustrated. So um, I, I think it, it gives you that, that certainty around this, this is how this is going to perform in, a, in an absolute worst case scenario. Um, and now I've got options. You know, maybe, the, maybe the market does improve. Maybe we stay where we're at, but I continue to get dividends and accumulate some growth there. Um, but it, it does provide that, that great peace of mind with um, really strong guaranteed performance.
0: You know so I you know I never like you know obviously we we even if somebody's 35 years old you don't say to them hey this is the current dividend and dividends are definitely going to go up you never say that but but we would think that in a normal economic cycle we can't stay at these low dividends forever that there's going to be a normalization and maybe even periods of hyperinflation throughout that 35 year old's lifetime And, um, but, you know, we know the left side of the ledger, the guaranteed side of the ledger, that's worst case scenario, right? And it still looks great, worst case scenario. But we know that the the other side, that's the floor. So I mean, the the left side's the floor. So, you know, what I always tell people is when I'm looking at a universal life, it's a projection. Hey, here's what would happen if interest rates were 7% forever. Well, Or whatever number you use. But you know, that's that's not realistic either, because it would never be that flat growth line of seven percent every single year. I think that's that's the part of universal life that people might look at and think, hey, this is attractive. But Kelly, maybe speak to this. Is I always say again, when I'm talking to people, I'm trying to make things as simple as possible to understand, but with a whole life the risk is on the insurance company because they're calculating this for your whole life. They're calculating it actuarially on a universal life. You're buying a term policy with increasing mortality costs and you're a side fund of some sort, right? A side, could be a sub account in a VUL could be an index, whatever it is. And so the risk is more on you, the, the policy holder. And with whole life, it's more on the, uh, Insurance company is there? Would you agree with that, or is there anything to add to
1: that? No, I, th- I think you hit it, hit the nail on the head, and, and that's um, that's really the the key distinction between whole life and universal life contracts. You know, the when when a UL was first launched, whole life was was already the predominant product in the marketplace. And let's say you designed a product or designed a policy at twenty thousand dollars a year premium on a, on a million dollar policy for a client, you could have sold them a UL contract at the exact same time and they could pay they could pay $100,000 once, they could pay $5,000 for the next 10 years and then start paying 50 grand. So the the big selling point behind UL was flexibility. I can I can pay my premiums however whenever I want. I just need to make sure there's enough cash value in there to keep the thing going. Um, so that flexibility was the huge selling point. And then you fast forward 20 years and that flexibility has agents cursing you know yeah what why did we give them so much flexibility when you say yeah you can fund a little bit here you can skip a year here and there and now i've got this policy that's upside down so there's a lot of people that have come into the industry and um the the way they get in the industry is is working on orphan clients and there were ul contracts written 20 or 25 years ago and they haven't performed you know interest rates have taken a downward trajectory um and, and now they're trying to figure out how do I fix these policies? Well, it's a lot easier to fix it. If I know I pay my 10 grand or 20 grand a year into this permanent whole life policy, there isn't going to be a surprise. I know that's the premium forever. There's no, there's no flexibility. And that's a good thing because I know exactly what I'm buying and what I'm going to get out of it. So, um, that, that was, uh that is a big distinction between the two contracts, and and what's seen maybe as a as a huge advantage. Um, in some cases, you know, if somebody's got the self-discipline to fund it exactly as they originally planned, yeah, that could help for UL. But in a lot of cases, people don't don't follow through on on that original great plan and great intention.
0: Yeah, but I think that you know I don't want to say this out of a blanket statement, but there's a lot of people out there selling it the wrong way. And as you know, I inherited um, a lot of policies to straighten out. And I would tell you that I've never seen a universal life policy where the client's over 65, where their cash value and everything and their death benefit is anywhere close to the original illustration because it was, it was set up in a different environment, right? right? And even in the VUL, I've just never seen one that's outperformed or even performed up to the illustration once the person gets over 65. And I know I'm not telling you anything, but once you get over 65 and that mortality curve starts to look more like the blade of a hockey stick, then, uh, you know, you're in trouble. And and people would say to me when I inherited these policies that were set up incorrectly, they would say to me, well, at least I have my death benefit. And I always hated to say to them, "Mm, no, you're going to have to put more money in there. You're not going to have the death benefit. Right. On a whole life policy. We never have to apologize for that. And when we, um, Emeritus has one of the most competitive paid up additions riders, and the way that I describe that is is it's kind of, it's a single pay little insurance contract attached to the base whole life policy and up to 150% of the base, there's no load in there, right? With Emeritus, talk a little bit about that rider and how that helps flexibility because it's kind of uh you know the flexibility when people are in the audience they think gosh I like that flexibility but you can have some flexibility this is in my opinion it's the perfect hybrid of getting the whole life guarantees and the whole life kind of a tank that's that's hard to destroy and having the flexibility
1: yeah yeah exactly so I'll I'll use I'll keep keep my example going on the $20,000 whole life contract. So instead of a $20,000 base premium, um, we'd set it up as $8,000 of base premium and $12,000 into our paid up rider. There's a couple of advantages, the reason I pulled those numbers out of the year. That means our our flex paid up rider is gonna be designed as optimally as possible, where for the first 150% of your base premium, our paid up rider is is not going to charge a premium load. So that $12,000 goes in without a load, and you have guaranteed $12,000 of cash value. Um, so there is an excess load if you go beyond that, that limit. Um, but that is the most optimal design. And the the other advantages of that flex paid up rider is you, you have the ability to skip premiums on it, you don't need to, um, to pay that every year. So if, if you pay 20 grand into the contract for the first three years, the next year, you could say, I just want to pay the base premium, I'll pay 8,000, skip this paid up rider premium and Um, if I wanted to pay more, you know, a lot of, a lot of situations, somebody gets a raise, they get a bonus, have a windfall. Um, you can put more into that paid up rider. So you can go all the way up to 200%. Um, and, and you have that flexibility to say, I can pay anywhere from zero to 24,000 into this paid up rider each and every year. Um, so there, there is a lot more flexibility in in that Mm -hmm. aspect as well. Um, we, we designed that, you know, we had a paid up rider that was, fully scheduled, um, fully required you to pay the exact same amount or you reduce it each and every year. Um, had a lot of success with that writer, but the biggest drawback was that word flexibility, is it, it didn't provide that that level of flexibility. So uh, when we we launched our first flex paid up writer, had a lot of a uh, lot of success with that. Access whole life, which we launched a little over a year and a half ago now, um, that one we further enhanced that flex paid up rider So there's more room to um, To put in excess amounts of that relative to the base premium, and then a wider range of uh, what you could fund, you know, b- below and above that planned or scheduled amount. So, um, so that was where we were looking for. Yeah, let's let's get some of those advantages of premium flexibility, but still don't stray from the the guaranteed structure and the strength of a of a whole life chassis.
0: So you, let's let's talk a little bit about the access policy because I'll tell you. Um, in 20, was that 2019, everybody had to change their policies to, to the new mortality table, the 20, the 2017, yeah, 2017 2017 mortality, right? So I would just tell you that so many companies missed the mark. I mean, you know, I look at all these companies, right? Because, you know, um, and so many companies missed the mark. And the company that I saw just hit a home run was Emeritus on this, policy. And, um, you know, if you take a 40 or un, let's say under 50 year old female. Okay. And you're doing what you said. So I'm going to use, cause you know, you're, you're better at math than me. So I need to use a hundred thousand dollar premium so that I can figure out the ratios. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, at a hundred thousand dollar premium, 40% base, 60% PUA. If I put a hundred grand in the first year, I'm going to have around 62% cash value that first year. Now, here's this, the, the cool thing. On a female, if under 50, in that second year, I'm going to have over 100% growth of what I put in, meaning I put in 100 grand and it's going to be about a 103000 100 of growth on that, okay? So mm-hmm. other insurance companies are taking four or five years to get to that. How did Emeritus, uh, how did that happen? How, I mean, how is the design of this policy to where that's possible. You know, I don't know why it's called access, but to me it's access to your cash. So, you know, I don't know if that's what came into it, but that's how I explain it.
1: That's, yeah, that's exactly the the type of language I was I was looking for with that. Cause I mean, it really was about um, having that liquidity, you know, knowing that you can get to your cash um, early in the contract. Um, so we thought about names like high early cash value and there's there's some in the, in the market that, that accomplished that, but. It's not just about high early cash value, it's strong throughout the whole life of the contract. So, um, you know, I felt like access, it, it provides you access, not just year one, year two, but year 45, year 60 in the contract. So uh, it, it really does capture that, um, that well. Um, we changed we change the structure up quite a bit on this. So we made it, um, we made it a shorter paid up uh, guarantee age, and primary reason for doing that was to enhance some of those early guaranteed cash values. So you do see that performance, like you said, right out of the gate, You're looking at year two, um, the total premiums you put in in year two, you get all that back through the growth and the cash value just in that second year. So yeah, that, that is very much intentional in the design of that. And um, by making it paid up in a shorter period of time, um, we were able to, to drive up some of those early guaranteed cash values. Awesome.
0: And you know, uh, didn't uh, Kelly correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I I don't think people in the audience or most insurance agents realize how long it takes for a policy written to be profitable to the insurance company. And one of the advantages that an insurance company has over an individual is they can have a lot longer time horizon, right? And, um, and therefore smooth out some of these things like we're talking about today, pandemics and, and low interest rates and envi- environments, et cetera. But um, uh, didn't you guys extend the amount of time before the policy was profitable to create some of these performance enhancements too?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd say relative to most of our currently sold products, this this has a longer uh, payback period. So the, the point where, from the, the carrier's perspective, when the just total distributable earnings of this product exceeds, um, the capital contributed to make that product work. It it is a longer period of time than most of our other products. Uh, and we, we were aware of that going in and we knew what we were signing up for with that. Um, but like I said, we, we felt like this is, this is a really important part of our product portfolio. Um, really important that we'd be as competitive as possible in, in this space.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. One last thing that I want to touch on. And I, um, I appreciate uh, I'm, I'm looking at the timer here and I'm going longer than most of our episodes, Kelly, but I could probably I could probably do a two hour uh, episode uh, just because, you know, it's so interesting to me. And, um, you know, I've, I've been doing this 33 years and, you know, the the more that every day is like a learning experience every day is just so you know having access to you is is great and i appreciate you coming on again um let's talk about these new regulations the new 770 is it is that the right way to say it the new 7702 yeah. rules yep. and and the changes there and what are the positives and any negatives that you see going forward under in this new environment
1: yeah the um so the 7702 changes it's really about differences in interest rates uh so what um, what's happened over the past I don't know 30 plus years? We've only updated mortality tables as those have happened. We were just talking about 2017 CSO that happened at the end of 2019. Um, this this surprise kind of happened at the end of last year, where um, Congress ended up approving changes to the 7702 interest rates. So the the way that impacts whole life contracts is the um, the interest rate used in met calculations. In uh, most situations, is is going to go down in the in the future. And I say in the future because most contracts on the market today have have a contract rate of four um, percent, just like we were talking about before. That's used in the guaranteed cash value determinations, all those present value calculations we end up doing. Um, that's four percent. That also gets used in the non-forfeiture demonstrations. And up until this past year, there was a four percent floor in that non-forfeiture calculation. So what's gonna happen at the end of this year, January 1st of next year, the highest contract rate that's gonna be available on the market is 3.75%. Um, and the lowest that anybody could offer is gonna be 2%. Now the, that is, um, that's good news and bad news. The, the good news is that provides way more flexibility in the design than, than we've ever had before in, in whole life. Um, the bad news is we don't really know what everybody's gonna do in terms of their, their product designs. Um, so I'll, I'll provide an example here just to, to highlight. So the, the 4% contract rate right now, that that is going to get used in the MEC calculation to say, all right, we're, we have no impacts on, on seven pay premiums. And um, for those listening that aren't as familiar with this, this is basically the, the delineation between where I keep my tax advantages and the cash value of my whole life contract versus having some less advantageous tax treatment. Um, and that is basically just a a line in the sand where as soon as I go above this premium amount, it moves into a modified endowment contract status. And then I get taxed in a different way. Not quite as attractive as if I'm non-MEC. Um, so if we, if we drop it all the way down to a 2% contract rate, um, for a a 40 year old client, that could mean double the MEC premium. My MEC premium is 20 grand today. New contract with a 2% contract rate. My MEC premium is 40 grand. Um, so. The the flexibility in design is going to be way greater moving forward, um, but that also means that there's there's going to be a huge shift between um, what people are used to seeing for products today versus what they're going to see in the future. And is it going to check all the boxes, accomplish everything we want? Um, the other thing that's really non-intuitive is as you lower that contract rate, you push those guaranteed cash values higher. And if we go back to that example where I was talking about age 121 million dollars of cash value for a million dollars of death benefit you're present valuing that amount back at at a lower rate um, each and every year so if you look at a 50 year old um, instead of using four percent to present value that million dollars back I'm using two percent that means I'm going to have higher guaranteed cash values all throughout the contract by using that lower interest rate so so the non-intuitive answer is we lower a contract rate from four percent all the way down to two and a half or two percent and my guaranteed cash values go way up that's a good thing uh, from the carrier's perspective we're not going to be able to afford paying substantially higher guaranteed cash values at the same premium so if somebody goes to an interest rate that low all odds are they're going to move up the guaranteed premiums to, to help offset some of those those costs so um so it's a long-winded answer to your question it, it really means there's there's going to be huge shifts in the, in the way companies design their contracts um, everybody in the marketplace is going to have to refile and rebuild their whole life policies between now and the end of the year so that come January 1st um, everybody's compliant with uh, this new regulation so um, there's there's a lot of work already happening within emeritus I know a lot of work happening across the industry to, to get ready for these updates um, but that's just a little thumbnail sketch as to, to what we're up to with that that's
0: awesome and you know the thing is is that what I what I've seen from the last time we retooled all of these, policies is you know i think again i think emeritus kind of stood out in their uh in in really making sure that it was a competitive product and i have no doubt that you guys will do that again in this retooling um and uh, and we would expect like this access policy that, that we're talking about to be available at least through the end of the year
1: oh yeah yeah absolutely so yeah. The, the end date it um, in, in our current form, all of our whole life products will be available till uh, till the end of the year. And then we'll be working through uh, updates to, to be in market first first of the year with the, the new rates. Uh, so like I said, the, the biggest change, everybody's got to move that contract rate. So if you look, there's the the range, what could be offered right now is between four and four and a half percent. Um, people are gonna be filing those and, and come January of next year, they're, they're all going to have to to come down at least a little bit and potentially a lot um, anywhere in that two to 3.75 percent range
0: right right yeah you know it's funny you talk about um, the cost um, and the premium uh, you know in in a policy and there's one company out there that that touts their dividend all the time and I don't know why they do because their dividend is not higher really than anybody else's but their expense their 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 actual base premium for a million dollar policy is considerably higher And uh, and what they do is they 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 put a term rider on there that kind of uh, the dividend buys out the term rider. And I know and 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 uh, I don't want to name names of the company, but if I take an emeritus policy and I and I put the additional PUA in there and because our uh, you know, the, the emeritus premium. Is is a lot lower, so that I I put that additional PUA in there, just like blows away their policy. But um, I think, I, and I think you know what I'm talking about. But um, I, I think that uh, that eliminating with this new this new rule, I think we're going to eliminate a lot of term riders. And I've never been a big fan of putting term riders on, especially on an infinite banking policy, because it I've seen companies Kelly where the uh, where the dividend has gone down and it's created a mech because of this term rider. Um, and this should eliminate those
1: issues, shouldn't it? The new rules. Yeah, it'll, it'll certainly help, um, with that issue. And, and we, we plan to continue to have term riders available, um, because, because yeah. there's definitely designs where, uh, it could make sense. And, um, you know, depending on what the, the need is, if it, if it really is just about, I, I have a, a short-term protection need and it's not being used to, to help right. get get to a stronger MEC performance, yeah, it's more efficient, I save a policy fee, it's the same competitive premiums you can get on a, a value plus term or, or standalone term product, um, but I save a policy fee, yeah, why not put it on the, on the whole life contract? But I, I definitely agree with you that there, there are a lot of scenarios where um, funded absolutely optimally, as efficiently as possible, using a term writer to make that happen, um, the dividend doesn't always play out exactly the way it was originally illustrated, and, and you could have an inadvertent MAC at some point in the future. And you know, we'll usually work with people to you know, maybe we need to reduce the, the term piece and um, come up with a way to avoid that, that MAC and, and get that fixed retroactively. Um, but so we're, we're very accommodating on, on that side of things, but it, it does end up creating some more challenges um, for you as, the, as a producer, trying to make sure that that thing works as, as efficiently and cleanly as possible.
0: You know, I'm thinking of like the person that says, um, um, Hey, you know, there's, there's, uh, there are people out there that they're, they're really touting the PUA and the way that they get more PUA and less base premium is by using the term rider. And I think that's kind of manipulating it too much. And what I mean by that is somebody would say, I want 10% base. Let's use my hundred thousand dollar premium. I want 10% base and I want a $90,000 PUA. Well, you know, where the leveraging of the policy really happens is in the base side. But like you said, I'm gonna have load in my PUA now. I'm gonna have this term cost. I'm gonna have this exposure. And really all I'm gaining is a little bit higher cash value that first year. I'm not gaining anything long-term and that term rider then becomes dangerous because I don't have very much base if something happens in dividends and et cetera, it's just to me, and then they tell people, which isn't, uh, you, you maybe speak to this is, well, I'll, we'll just take the term rider off there after seven years, but they've projected the PUA for 10 years. You know, like that yeah. doesn't work, does
1: it? it? does not work. Yeah, every every dollar of paid up rider we, we receive uh, is treated as a material change. So there's gonna be a new calculation of the MEC premium and then, if we receive another dollar premium after that, um, it's constantly recalculating your capacity to put additional dollars of premium in. So, um, so it is it is creating f- potential future issues if if you're going to drop that term writer off at some point in the future before you fully intend to stop funding. You know, if you're going to if you're going to do a ten pay, I put a ten year term writer on it. I, I RPU at the end of those ten years. I'm I'm probably in good shape there. But if if I want to keep paying the paid up writer for another five or ten years after that that's where you run into problems where I don't have the room death benefit wise to keep throwing that much money into it.
0: Yeah. So, you know, what I, what I always say is I don't want to plan somebody's uh, insurance future where failure is an option. That's why we don't use universal life. And that's why we don't use these big, I mean, we occasionally use a small term rider to just to keep it under the mech line. And depending on how your age and your underwriting class and everything else, but but the big rider where it's like ninety ten, and this big rider, we just don't do it because I think you bring failure into it to where, like you said, hey, I'm going to have to RPU it. And if I'm if I'm buying cash-flowing assets with my cash value, or with with by by uh, collateralizing my cash value and using the insurance companies to go money to go buy these assets, I'm going to have a lot of money flowing back into the insurance contract. And so I got to be able to hold that. And, you know, Nelson always talked about volume over rate. Well, Kelly, I mean, I think I could talk about this stuff all day and I've kept you longer than than um, almost longer than I than I promised. So um, the one thing I ask everybody and, uh, uh, you know, this doesn't have to be related to insurance or anything else. But Kelly, what's one book that you've read in your life that you'd recommend, you know, everybody read? What's is there a book that comes to mind when I ask you that question?
1: Oh, book, a book that everybody has to read. Um, well, from, from a business standpoint, I love good to great. Uh, yeah. I've really enjoyed that book. Uh, so I, I've referenced that a number of times over my career. Um, like I've a house full of young kids and my favorite book to to read to them has been little house on the prairie series. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's a good go-to just, uh, um, for, uh, if, for those of you that are trying to, to keep the kids engaged and, and remember a little bit uh, more challenging time. We think we got it hard right now, but, uh, is is a little more difficult back in the day. So, um, yeah. those are two that uh, far opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, but those those are ones that uh, definitely have an influence on me and my family.
0: You know, here's something else, Kelly, that I'd recommend for all uh, uh, littler kids is the Tuttle Twin books, which are free economics. It takes like Austrian economics, free market, and it and it and it and it makes it really interesting. And they have a whole little series of books. I think you can buy the whole series as a package. But if you if you go to like tuttletwins.com or something like that, um, but uh, or just to, uh, search t- Tuttle twin, Twins, uh, but those are great books. And I, I'm sure your kids would love them. If you if you get them, let me know what, what you think. Um, okay, well, let's wrap this up. This has been really interesting. You know, we try to on this show bring the audience... Um, people that are out there using policies and infinite banking people that are doing real estate investing people that are uh uh are syndicators people all kinds of things and it's and it's rare that we get somebody to be really transparent and authentic from the insurance company and being so open so i thank you so much kelly for coming on um definitely is going to be an episode that i'm going to look forward to listening to again
1: Excellent, Jim, thanks thanks so much for having me. It's always a great time getting to connect with you and appreciate you giving me a chance to, to talk, not just to you, but to your whole audience. So very, Absolutely. very much appreciated.
0: Absolutely, okay, until next time, audience, you gotta break away. And one of the ways that you break away is you educate yourself. And today you got an education on how an insurance contract works, how actuaries think and how insurance companies uh, posture uh, themselves for, for the future and protect you as a policy holder. And uh, until next time, break away from the herd because nothing good happens in the herd.
1: Want to become your own banker and build wealth on your own terms? We'd
0: love to help. Go to createtailwind.com to learn more and schedule a complimentary consultation.